just want to, first of all, welcome all of you who are visiting. Um, we are really low in numbers today, no big deal. Um, we are going to be talking about the heart. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Ooh. Welcome to Echo Church. We're called Echo Church simply because uh, we resonate the love that God has for us. In other words, what I mean by that is this. The love that you feel for someone else, especially the love that's difficult, it is actually, the source of it is actually found in God. And the blessings that we are given, we then give to everyone else. We begin to realize as we live out our lives that, guess what? None of it belongs to us in the first place. And so we use the body that God has given us. Uh, the Latin phrase is the imago Dei, the image of God. And we use it in ways that bring God glory. But we are a resonation. We are an echo of, of what he has provided to us. And so we want to love the world the same way. And so that's where we get our name from. Um, I just want to go ahead and tell you right now, I'm going to make a real brief announcement about uh, July 27th. We were going to start a series four weeks long, possibly five weeks long, and the series is going to be taught by you. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this. Uh, it's, when I was a kid, we, we were in a small church at the time, and there would be an opportunity for you to stand up and give a sermon now and then. Of course, as you were a kid, they would never give you the pulpit on Sundays. It was always like a Sunday night or, you know, after church on Wednesday or, you know, something like that. But, you know, after some discussion, there have been several of you who have mentioned that, you know what, you might have a lesson that's on your heart that you would love to share. And so what we want to do is this, provide you with that opportunity. So for a matter of about four weeks, maybe five, just depending, if you have a message that God has laid upon your heart and you would like to give it to the church, we're at that size where we can actually do that and it would make a tremendous series. And so what we're going to do is we're going to compile those lessons into one four or five week long series in August and it will begin on July 27th. So if you have a message on your heart, please talk to me uh, as soon as possible just so I can, you know, just listen to the ideas that you have. Maybe we'll go grab coffee or something like that. So anyway, keep that in your mind. What if I told you that my heart's not in it? What if I got up and just simply said, you know what, my heart, today my heart's just not in it. Or what if I said this, my heart is so full and I am so excited to be here today. Like how does that translate, Right? Even now, I just announced to you that I would like for some of you who have a message on your heart to present. What does that mean? Have you thought about this? I mean, usually when we talk about the heart, we don't really think about it a whole lot because guess what? It translates. For some reason, it translates. When somebody says that, you know what, that really that, that hurt their heart, right? Their heart broken, that type of thing. Most of us know what they're talking about. In fact, many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, can relate to some level. But what is it? What is that? Is it emotion? When we talk about the heart, are we talking about, um, you know, the mental capacity? Are we talking about ethics? I mean, what, what is this? And then when you connect heart with behavior, things get really, really messy, Right? Because many times we like to monitor our own behavior as well as the behavior of other people, right? In other words, if somebody's doing something wrong, we're quick to point it out. 
oh, he shouldn't have done that. You know what? Mm, I hope he gets in trouble, right? That's kind of what we say, things like that. In fact, we then make an assumption of their heart based on the severity of what they just did because that behavior means that they obviously have a problem with their heart. But when we talk about that, the heart, what is it that we're talking about? Obviously, it's pretty complicated. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. And then, who can understand it? Who can understand it? Right? The implication is, is that not very many people can understand it. But I want to know, what is it? Right? And what does it mean? When we talk about not understanding the heart, what are the implications of the heart? Now, I will always remember May 18th, way back when I was about seven years old. Actually, yep, I was seven years old. We had a church up in Evero. You'll still see it today. If you drive up Evero Hill, you look off to your left as you're going around Evero, and you'll see a little community center. It's a white schoolhouse. It looks exactly the same today as it did then. And that's where our little church met, was in this schoolhouse. We were coming home, I believe it was a Wednesday night, but we were coming home from some service or meeting that we had up there, and it was getting kind of dark, and the fog was rolling in. And my dad, I remember this because we were in the Subaru, and my dad said, this is really odd. Like, where is the fog coming from? Because <laughs> we're nowhere close to the river as we're, as we're coming back into Missoula. And on May 18th in 1980, a significant event happened that nobody expected at all, and that was the explosion of Mount St. Helens. So Mount St. Helens exploded. No one had ever seen or experienced anything like it. It was a catastrophe. It was about $1.1 billion and all sorts of damage, and 57 lives were lost. Some say it was possibly even more. Um, But when Mount St. Helens exploded, nobody expected it. That was a dormant volcano, which is the reason people were hiking on it at the time, right? It's because there had been no seismic activity whatsoever for the, ever since the 1840s, nothing. And then all of a sudden, it, it erupts and causes this huge catastrophe. In so many ways, the heart is very similar. It's like there's something that's rumbling beneath the surface. Now, we could be talking about your heart, But most often when we're talking about the hearts of other people, all of a sudden, out of the blue, so-and-so asks for a divorce, right? I've sat in a vehicle with another person for hours because they never saw that coming, that their wife would suddenly cheat on them, right? Suddenly, a kid has... Problems in school. All of a sudden, out of the blue, it's like they were a a grade A student, and then the very next quarter, they're getting D's, maybe even F's, and something happens with their attitude. And you're wondering, what, what changed? It's like the heart, something's going on beneath the surface. Suddenly, there's a harmless pastime that you have that becomes a destructive habit. Or maybe out of nowhere, there are devastating words that completely pierce your soul, said to you by a loved one. I think many of us can understand the lack of predictability, right, and suddenness. 
that a change in the heart can bring to us. So what are we talking about when we talk about the heart? Well, the Hebrew word for heart is this word lebab, and I, I practiced it. Uh, that's literally what it is, lebab. And in Greek, it is the cardia. And it's used, this idea of the heart is used over a thousand times throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. And it typically denotes a person's center for both the physical or for actually the physical, the emotional, and the moral, the center, right? So we have a concept that we're not just using today. It's been used for thousands of years. It's been used not only by the Hebrew people, but all these different nations, thousands of years even before Christ came to earth. The heart usually typically denotes the idea of this organ that's beating in your chest. And so ancient cultures would recognize that as being the center of a person, right? And so it immediately becomes figurative for the centrality of what causes a person to do something. And so you have this sum of all powers, the mental, the bodily, the spiritual, all of it condensed into this phrase, the heart. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 5, Abraham, uh, he has some guests visit his camp. Uh, he's going to receive some very shocking news. But when his uh, visitors um, arrive at this camp, it was very customary for him to, you know, be hospitable. And so he offers for them to, uh, to sit down, and, and it says that uh, Abraham says these words. He says, please sit and strengthen your hearts. In other words, there's this idea that I'm going to give you some food, and, and whatever it is that has you weary at this time, may it be strengthened. But it's translated from strengthen your hearts. This idea that the central element of humanity is, is, needs this type of comfort. So here's what I'd like to do. I want us to talk about the centrality of our hearts. And what we're going to do this week is this. I want to discuss the different aspects of the heart. And then this week, your homework is this. I want you to pray. And I want you to pray Psalm 52. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I want you to pray Psalm 52. And I'll, I'll give you the words here in just a second. But when we're talking about the, the heart, when we're looking at the physical attributes of the heart and this centrality, uh, what are we talking about? Well, first of all, one aspect is there's this figure of inaccessibility. Inaccessibility. In other words, as we've already said, there's something below the surface. You can't quite detect it. It's also not quite accessible. If you are a parent, you wish it was accessible, Right? It is not accessible. Uh, Jonah chapter 2 verse 3 talks about the heart, but it's re referencing the heart of the seas. He's referring to the seas fathomless and unapproachable depths, the, the, the places that you can't even see that only God knows exists. Proverbs 25 verse 3 says, As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so is the heart of kings, which is unsearchable. Right? So this idea of the heart, it's unsearchable. It's inaccessible. Or is it? Well, another aspect is, is that the heart actually is very much accessible and revealed to God. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we see this prophet Samuel. He's actually a judge, uh, but he's also a prophet. Samuel is going to anoint the second king of Israel. The first king, 
didn't go so well. That was King Saul, right? And God has sent him to go anoint the next king. And so he goes to this household. It's this household of Jesse. He sees all these boys, and he's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely where the king will be because these guys are big, they're ripped, they're handsome, all that kind of stuff. And he's going through each of them, and the Lord warns him. He says, listen, don't look at the outward appearance. What does he say? Look at what? The heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Am I off? Did that just go off, or is that better? Can you, can you hear me? Okay, sorry. Sorry, I thought I was loud. Uh, and so uh, we find in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, I search the heart, and I test the mind. And even in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, God talks about a, a time when he, as judge, will expose the hidden counsels of the heart. In other words, he knows what's going on. That, that particular verse makes me nervous, right? Because he knows, right? But then the heart is also revealed, in some ways, the heart is revealed to humans, to each of us. Yeah, I, I always love getting into this particular argument. And those of you who know me, you know I like to spar a little bit. Um, but when people say, you know, you don't know the heart. Really? Do we? Maybe we know at least a portion of the heart. Why would I say that? Jesus says that the heart's secrets are betrayed by mouth. And that comes out of Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. A wise man's heart guides his mouth. Those are the words of Solomon, right? In other words, the things that he is going to say reveal something that's going on inside, if we're talking about that. So at least we know a little bit. The heart's reasoning depends on its moral condition. Jesus says that from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. That's in Mark chapter 7, and we'll get to that more in just, a, in just a bit. The human heart is deceitful above all things. This is out of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And Proverbs 22 reminds us that folly is found up in the heart of a child. In other words, the ways in which he, wor- he lives himself, or the ways in which his behavior manifests themselves, there's at least some indication of the heart. Of course, how much indication of the heart and how complete of a picture are we actually given? But we see at least some signs, right? Therefore, the Spirit of God must give humans a new heart in in Jeremiah chapter 31. The heart is filled with another aspect of the heart is that we, when we associate the heart and the centrality that we're talking about, we are also talking about the emotion, right? The Bible refers to this over and over and over. It says that we have a full range of emotion. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read of the joy that we have, the sorrow that we have in 1 Samuel 1, uh, raging and anger in 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm just blasting through this because we have uh, quite a bit to go through, but we experience peace, feelings of being troubled and, and rejoicing. Our selfish ambition, James 3, talks about this in James 3 verse 14. The emotional state of the heart affects the rest of the person. Even Proverbs 15 says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but but heartache crushes the spirit. Going back to how I sort of introduced things, right? How does it translate to you when you hear that even the guy on the stage, that his heart is troubled or perhaps filled up? How does that then connect with your own? A cheerful heart is good medicine. A crushed spirit dries up the bones, and also in Proverbs chapter 12, uh, 17. 
But the heart also wishes. It longs for and it desires. Another aspect of the heart is that it desires for things. A father uh, in Proverbs 6 warns his son against desiring the adulteress and her beauty. In Proverbs 23, the father also warns his son against envying sinners with his heart. What is he talking about? I think he's talking about what we commonly call peer pressure. I think he's talking about the things that are around us that we see. Other people doing that we know probably isn't good, right? And yet they get away with it. Or actually, they, they're pretty cool, right? And we long for that. There's something in our heart that stirs. Jesus would address this when he talked about how if we put our treasures in heaven, that would be the place where our, what, heart is as well. But then there's this emotional side, and I really kind of want to narrow in on this a bit. The, another aspect of what it means to, uh, another aspect of the heart is this, that there is this intellectual function. In other words, the heart thinks. Uh, it says that Jesus himself, when he, he knew their thoughts in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts. Now, at this particular moment, what had happened was this. He had this, this guy who was paralyzed. He had been lowered down through a roof, right? And already people were, were grumbling, and in their minds they were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. They were also trying to accuse him of, of thinking this could not be the Son of God because, you know, if it's the Sabbath, he shouldn't be working and doing miracles. All sorts of thoughts were going through their minds. And Jesus immediately says, why are you thinking evil in your minds? No, in your hearts. He said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And of course, he, he demonstrates his ability as the Messiah by first forgiving his sins, but then having him stand up and, and walk. The heart remembers, it reflects, it also um, meditates. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and a largeness of heart. Isn't that fun? He gave him wisdom, right? And understanding, some of your translations might say knowledge, but then it also says, and largeness of heart. Even as the sand that is on the seashore. Commentaries are all over the place on this. Some say it's the capacity of what he was able to, to learn at that time. I don't know. I think they're referring to something that's difficult to describe. There was something in Solomon that his wisdom connected to that transcended even knowledge because it already said that he received knowledge. He had a largeness of heart. But when we talk about knowledge and knowing and understanding what are we talking about we're also talking about a spiritual type of understanding we could call this a, a certain kind of discernment um, you know in in some ways um, we look at this discernment we look about what it means to know somebody or to know somebody's heart we're not necessarily talking about knowledge we're talking about something that's stirring inside of us um, proverbs 2 verse 10 says wisdom will enter your heart What's interesting, though, is when the Septuagint was translated. Now, the Septuagint means that they translated the Old Testament into Greek, all right? It was a, a, a version of the Old Testament translated about 200 years prior to Jesus Christ that they then translated into Greek, and they didn't use the word heart. They translated, wisdom will enter your heart. They translated it into, wisdom will come into your understanding. 
it will come into your understanding. Because the Greeks, they would understand that a little bit more clearly. It was like this idea of heart was just a little too ambiguous. And so they would move that over into this idea of understanding, perhaps spiritual understanding. It cannot be something that is separated from morality. Isaiah says, make the heart of this people calloused, otherwise they might understand with their hearts. And Pharaoh hardened his heart when he was hearing Moses, and eventually the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart himself. And Paul would later talk about how foolish hearts were darkened in Romans chapter 1. In other words, we're getting closer and closer from this idea of the physical into this idea of the mental with the knowledge and whatnot, and then even closer into the spiritual. There's something more than just the first two when we talk about our hearts. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not giving you this in the context of whether or not you're a Christian. This is all humanity. This is all cultures. This is throughout human history. I love to talk about things that make us unique as humans. I put this in that category. The things that I'm talking about right now, I'm using Bible verses to reference, but at the same time, I'm here to tell you, people feel this. They know it exists. There's something that stirs deep inside. So what do we do with it? Well, we do this. We educate the heart. So how do we do that? As a kid... We had a lot of memory work. Recently, Steve Dibdahl came up to me and he said, you know what, we should do some memory verses. I knew exactly what he was talking about because we grew up with that. And we would have all these different competitions and whatnot. I remember one Bible class teacher, he, um, he put all these memory verses on a particular, you know, um, it was like a poster or whatnot. And the first person to have all of them memorized would get a dinner wherever they wanted to go. What was great was I didn't have to work as hard as my other brothers because no matter where we would go, we were brothers, and I'd get to eat for free. So anyway, I, you know, but I, I, we, we like memorized all these different verses. And why would we do that? Is that what it means to educate the heart? Perhaps Proverbs 2 says this, My son, if you will receive my words and, the treas- and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. When Moses, Moses is giving the people the law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he just gives them the Shema. Do you know what that is? Or the Shema? They would recite this over and over and over. It was the greatest command, right? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, spirit, right? All right. This is the Shema that they, that they would give. And immediately after that, he said this, These words which I'm commanding you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as the frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You should put it everywhere. There should be some level of memorization, right? Because it's It's coming into your mind, but really, what are we doing? We're trying to educate something a little bit deeper than just this. Now, what's fascinating is, when you get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, he comes down on the Pharisees pretty hard. And he ridicules them because of the amount of memorization that they do. 
Now, why would he do that? <laughs> I love it when I give rhetorical questions, but people answer. I love it. It's so great. <laughs> because, yes, exactly. What they're doing is this. They think that through those words that they have found life. But what are the words for? What is all of this message intended to do? It's to go deeper than just this brain. There's another, the metaphor of tablets of the heart, Proverbs 3, verse 3. A lot of you know this one. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The heart needs to be educated by filling it up with God's word. Proverbs chapter 22, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips. And by doing so, we find ourselves being more safeguarded by, from sin, from the evils of this world. I know this for a fact, and I know this even most recently. I already described to you a couple weeks ago that as part of Burn the Ships, which is, um, well, really, it's, it's this organization that we're working on where we are addressing sexual addiction, right? So we have a men's group, and part of that men's group means that you have a journal, and in that journal, all you are doing is you are rewriting Scripture. Isn't that interesting? I was told that some denominations ask that if you're going to be a pastor, that you rewrite an entire book of the Bible, right? That you just transcribe it. And that's what we do. We write this down. We allow the Spirit to speak to us. And perhaps we write it again. Perhaps we circle certain words, and then we pray through it. I personally have found that if I start my day in that particular manner, something's different. I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be churchy. I'm not trying to give you the stained glass answer, and I'm certainly not trying to give you a formula for a better life. I'm just telling you, I've seen how the Word of God, even recently, can permeate deep inside of me and in deep inside of this idea of the heart. But the heart also functions as a conscience. There's a great story in 1 Samuel 24. David has not been appointed king. Now, I told you, he would be appointed king. Samuel, God directed Samuel to anoint David, who was this youngest boy. In fact, he wasn't even in the house when he got there. Right? They had to call for him because he was out tending the sheep. His father didn't think that he would be worthy at all. He's like, that kid? <laughs> you know, it's your son. So they, they bring him in, and he's anointed. So he's going to be the future king. Shortly thereafter, he goes and he fights a giant. Everybody now knows the name of David. They have all these different songs. They say King Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. And it doesn't go over well with Saul. King Saul becomes so angry, threatened, he decides to pursue David and kill him. He pursues him and pursues him. And it's a fascinating, fascinating collection of scriptures in, in 1 Samuel. But when you get to 1 Samuel 24, say David has been cornered. Saul goes into a cave, it says, to relieve himself, probably going to the bathroom. It's the same cave that David is in. And it's at that moment that David believes that God has delivered King Saul into his hands. So he takes out a knife. He sneaks up behind him. He reaches out, grabs a piece of the tunic, right? And cuts off the corner. Saul gets done, leaves the cave, Soon after, David also leaves the cave to show what's just happened. But before David does that, we read 
these words. It says, David arose. He cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. But it came about afterward that David's heart smote him. That's not a word we use. It smote him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. This is the Lord's anointed that I would stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. What's he saying? My heart, my conscience is bothering me. It's bothering me because this isn't just anybody. This is someone that God anointed. Yes, he's trying to kill me. I think he's probably in the wrong, but it's still someone that he anointed. Anointed by God. And it's like his heart. Something's happening in here. You have felt this. We've gotten closer and closer to this type of a spirituality or a type of, C.S. Lewis called it an ought not. There's an ought and ought not, Right? Different psychology texts will call it all sorts of different things, but there's this thing called ethics. There's something that stirs inside of every human that says this is right and this is wrong. And David is feeling it. It says that his heart smote him, right? In other words, his conscience was troubled. What's going on? That's another aspect of our heart that we can't ignore. You see it again in Peter. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when I was in uh, Israel, a couple years ago, I got to go just outside the wall. So everyone loves to go to the Wailing Wall, which um, kind of faces west, really. I mean, um, which was fantastic. But w- we were then guided around that, going south, and then around that corner, and we eventually found ourselves at what are called the Hulda Gates. And at the Hulda Gates, what you will find is this smooth sort of a portico with some steps, and then you'll have a bunch of what are called mikvahs. It's a ceremonial washing tub that the Jews would use for cleanliness. They're all over the place. And it's believed that Peter preached Acts 2 right there. And I remember standing there. It was probably the best part of my trip because that's where the church started. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, fills up Peter, who's kind of wishy-washy as a follower of Jesus Christ, and a little bit compulsive. He fills him up, And Peter then launches into one of the greatest sermons he's ever had. As a result of that particular sermon, preached to a bunch of people who had just murdered Jesus Christ, there comes a point in the lesson when he says, God's son, this is Jesus whom you just crucified. And at that moment in Acts chapter 2 verse 37 when they heard this it says they were pierced to the heart some of you have a translation that might say pricked to the heart but essentially what it is is there is a sudden emotional sharp pain some commentaries say it's like waking up you know how sometimes you wake up in a panic right you woke up and there was a sharp pain deep inside of their heart they were pierced to the heart and peter said and they said to peter and the rest of the the uh the apostles brethren What are we to do? So as soon as they heard this message from Peter and what they had done to Jesus, it's like that conscience thing, right? All of a sudden, their heart smote them. It was this piercing right here. You can relate. You know exactly what I'm talking about. However, what we do with it is what we're going to talk about next week. You see, I believe it's at that moment that the enemy gets very crafty. See, it's at that moment 
is where Satan kind of comes into the mix. Listen, I've just been trying to describe to you the centrality of the heart. Now I want us to go even one step further. What do we do with it? How do we respond to that? I mean, when we look at all of the different aspects of what it means to have the heart within us, especially this idea of being cut to the heart or having our heart smote, right? What does it result in? Well, it results in guilt. Sometimes it results in shame, which is different and destructive. I'll give you just a taste. God is greater than the shame and the guilt that we feel in our hearts. First John chapter 3 says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love one another. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. But even if we feel guilty, he's saying even if we feel guilty, guilty about what? Guilty about the decisions we've made, the things we've believed, the ways in which we've treated others. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our heart. Psalm 51. Did I say 52 earlier? Psalm 51 is what I meant. Sorry, scratch that. So Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, you hear David speaking out. He says this. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin that is ever before me. And in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Can you pray that prayer? That's, what I'd, that's the prayer that I'm wanting you to pray. That will prime you for what we talk about next week. Create in me a clean heart, O God. But there's one more aspect of the heart that I hate to bring up that I'm going to. It's something that um, I've been dwelling on myself quite a bit. I've spoken to some of you about it, but it's this. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, in his heart, a man plans his course. A man plans his course. But the Lord determines his steps. I think this is where things get a little bit dark for us. This idea that a man plans his steps. What are they talking about? You see, we devise things. We scheme. This is the part I don't think we ever really tell each other. It's too deep. It's too close to home. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'll just... I'll tell you this, I make plans. I'll tell you some of my plans. Sometimes I plan to avoid the people that I don't like. I'm just being honest. Like I make in my mind, if I see them at a grocery store, I literally try to check out fast. Guilty. Right? Like, that's the mild side of things. I've made plans before to even hurt the people that I do not like. I feel vindictive. Maybe rightly so. I have plenty of enemies. 
right? And in my heart, I'm crafting things. And I know this is true. I've, I've spoken to several of you about it. One of the things that I've learned over the years is this. When I catch myself monologuing, <laughs> oh man, I can monologue really well. It's almost like you get done. You know what I'm talking about? You get done with your speech. I don't know where you are. It could be anywhere where you're by yourself and you're going through your mind. This is what I would say. If I was with them right now, face to face, this is what I would say. Now, you don't say that. You don't even necessarily think that. You just put yourself in that context and then you monologue this thing where you're telling them exactly what they need to hear. I do that all the time. Man, some of them are good. Like I should record them or something, right? Just walk up to them and just hit play. You know, that type of thing. But what is it saying? And I thank God that I have a perspective where I wake up and I suddenly realize, what, what, what are you doing? Like, where did that come from? Where is its source? Have you made plans to actually see or meet people that you're attracted to? You know, we're talking about sexual addiction. That's one of those ugly, horrible places, right, that we don't ever want to talk about. It's just too dark. But somewhere at the root of sexual addiction, you're going to find this urge, this desire that you have, I'm going to seek out a way to get what I'm looking for. Maybe that means waiting until my spouse goes to work. Maybe that means waiting until my parents have left on their date. Right? You know the plans. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Hey, listen. As with every lesson and sermon that I give, it, it amounts to nothing if you can't connect the dots to your own self in a very honest and real way. You know your heart. Can you come face to face with the plans that you've made? Proverbs says, the father says to his son, above all else, guard your heart, son. For it is the wellspring of life. So remember, there is a good side of that heart. There's also a very dark side of that heart. Proverbs 6 verse 18 clearly states that the Lord detests a heart that devises Wicked schemes. And the truth is, you can see it play out. Now, as a pastor, I get to see it play out all the time. I, I, I get a front row seat to it, right? As parents, you see it play out. And it rips you to pieces. You watch your kiddo, who honestly, you've seen such a good side of their heart, despite the three-year-old tantrums, the disobedience, you know, all that kind of stuff. You will arrive at a spot where you can see that there is a torment, that there is a struggle deep inside. You can perhaps even see the schemes and the plans that they are creating. What's great is, is at a young age, it's easy to spot. But the older they get, the more clever they become. What do we do with that? So why do we make these plans, and where does this come from? We'll launch into this next week. Matthew 15, Jesus says these words. He says, the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart. And those defile 
the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. That's, that's harsh. What do we do with that? My last proverb to quote to you is Proverbs chapter 23. Now, I'll close up with this. The father says again to his son, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. You have no idea how often I've wanted to ask that question. Just give me your heart. You know, just let me have it. Just let me make some decisions for you, right? Just trust me with it. Because you're really watching. Perhaps you're watching a reflection of what you have gone through, right? Maybe what you're looking at is a replay in your mind of the mistakes that you have made yourself. But can you relate to this, where you see a father who's saying, just, you know what, just give it to me. I'll take it. The truth is, God gives us the same sentiment. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the, you just give me the top shelf. What is it that we have to do? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. He wants your heart. Can you give your heart to your father? That's what he's asking for. I mean, that's what that commandment means. Can you give your heart to him? Here are my questions for you. What is it that keeps us from giving our hearts to him? What are those obstacles that get in the way? Like, why do we not surrender that? What is it that, you know, reaches out and grabs our heart and keeps us from surrendering it to him? What's in the way? There's got to be something that's in the way. Next week, I want to talk about it. It's called the enemies of the heart. We're going to go through at least a couple, possibly three, given enough time. But my homework, once again, to you is this. Can you pray Psalm 51? Right? Can you surrender your heart to God? This week, I want you to think about it. Think about why you're making the decisions that you're making. Even better, I would love it if you can catch yourself in the plans that you're making with your heart, both good and bad. But prime yourselves for what we discuss next week. Listen, this is just a two-part series. Don't worry, right? We're not going to keep going. But it is a primer for things that we're going to be talking about this summer. That sounds a little daunting. I think it's exciting. But I want to make sure that when we launch ourselves into some difficult conversations, that you have examined your own heart and that you also give a benefit of the doubt to those around you and that you are allowing your Father to take your heart. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin that's ever before me. So, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let's pray. Great God, I thank you so much for what you have given us. And you've given us this thing that's a, a heart, a central piece of who we are. 
allow us to explore it. Gracious God, help us to have courage. Help us to have a new kind of courage, a courage that we perhaps never had before, where, we're, where we are willing to go into the depths, even those dark places that we're too ashamed to admit to. Lord, allow us to look at the ways in which we've made decisions and we've either turned our hearts towards ourselves or perhaps towards you or we're somewhere in the middle. Lord, be with us this week as we think about this, as we talk about this. Lord, open our eyes to the aspects of our heart that we didn't perhaps realize were there. Humble us, God, even to a place where we can admit that we might struggle with something that we haven't really known before. Great God, I thank you that you are so accessible. I thank you that you have loved us so much that all you've asked for is that you've asked for us to surrender our hearts to you. I thank you that you loved us so much you sent your son to die on the cross, that you displayed this incredible love, this thing that we call grace, and it permeates us, Lord. It gives us new energy and it gives us new direction. So allow our hearts to be saturated with that grace. Allow the darkness, the evil, the the selfishness, the conceit, all of those things to melt away. And Lord, help us to draw closer to each other. Help us to realize that by becoming a family that is closer and closer, that we can deal with these aspects of shame and guilt, the things that keep our eyes hidden from you. Lord, be with us this week. Be with us in the weeks to come. Thank you once again for your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.